0: Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist, and I'd like to welcome you to Episode 74 of Compliance Into the Weeds, the podcast where, with my good friend and colleague Matt Kelly, we take a deep dive into a compliance-related topic each week, literally going into the weeds to explore a topic. In this podcast, we continue our exploration of the Digital Realty Trust versus Summers uh, Supreme Court decision and look at some of the implications that may flow from it Particularly in light of the recent filing in the BioRad versus Waddler appeal. This was a case where a general counsel of a corporation uh, whistle blew to the board of directors about potential FCPA violations, and a trial court found that he was terminated for this action. Part of his award was under the Dodd Frank Act, and uh, the attorney did not file with the Securities Exchange Commission. He whistle blew internally. So the company is seeking to have that portion of his $11 million award overturned. It's approximately three million dollars. It's a fascinating exploration of what the implications of this case may be, not only for those professionals who are obligated to report internally, but also what it may uh, lead to in terms of retaliation by companies forcing employees to internally report for force first or have them subject to discipline. Compliance into the Weeds is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. Tom Fox, back again for another episode of Compliance into the Weeds with my good friend and colleague, Matt Kelly. This is a podcast where we take a deep dive, literally going into the weeds of a compliance or compliance-related topic. turns out that the digital realty trust versus Summers case not only has legs, it has a lot of legs. And some of those legs are already spouting. And Matt wrote about it last week in a case, uh, excuse me, uh, in a blog post entitled Supreme Court Whistleblower Ruling Already in Play, which uh, revolves around the BioRAD laboratories and lawsuit by their former general counsel, Sanford Wadler. So, Matt, uh, with that introduction, you want to uh, lay out the groundwork of uh, what whistleblower ruling has affected Mr. Wadler and his millions he won?
1: Yeah, sure, Tom. So it's uh, always a pleasure to be here. And this BioRad case, um, you know, I, I know that this has been a rather long piece of drama-rama in FCPA and whistleblower lore. So c- correct me if I get any facts wrong. However, so Sandley, Sandy Sandy Waddler, the ex general counsel of BioRad, uh, he at one point in several years ago suspected. Misconduct in Biorad's operations in China brought those concerns directly to the board. And therefore, as we note, he did not report this to the SEC. And we will get back to how this gums up the uh, Digital Reality Trust ruling in a moment. But he brought his concerns to the board, which investigated, found that there was no FCPA misconduct uh, at issue, and then fired Wadler. So he filed suit, uh, a whistleblower retaliation lawsuit against Biorad, where he said that this violated his anti-whistleblower protections under the Dodd-Frank Act, uh, because at that time, the Dodd-Frank Act protections, according to the SEC, were that you could even just report this internally and not to the SEC, which is what Wadler did. And then last year, he won $11 million in a uh, court verdict. Okay, fast forward to the Digital Reality Trust ruling that came down on February 21st, where the Supreme Court said, no, these protections only apply if you do first report to the, FCC, the SEC, which Wadler had not done. So right away, uh, BioRads lawyers were back in court uh, earlier this month where they were arguing to the, I think the appeals court in California where this case was currently being educated. Uh, they were saying that, well, under the digital reality ruling, then um, at least that claim that Wadler had me- raised under the Dodd Frank Act that shouldn't be valid anymore, and therefore they figured that he should lose about three million of the eleven million dollars in judgment that he had won. And this does not necessarily look good for Wadler because even he apparently, in some earlier filings, he and his lawyers said. Well, yeah, if the digital reality trust ruling goes this way, that it did, then this claim that we have won't stand up, but we'll cross that bridge when we come to it. Okay, we're at that bridge, we are crossing it, and here right away is a firm, BioRad, seizing on the digital reality ruling to crack down on a supposed or alleged or somebody who would say he is a whistleblower, but they're using this to say... They should not have to pay out the full whistleblower retaliation award that he won. That's where we are with this. So right away, we're already seeing that the digital reality ruling is has been weaponized in whistleblower litigation. That's I think that's the background all straightened out.
0: So let me just add from the lawyer perspective a couple of points. Uh, first of all, uh, apparently Wadler did timely file under Sarbanes-Oxley. Uh, so he does have uh, remedies under Sarbanes-Oxley in terms of both uh, whistleblower protection and uh, rights to uh, future lost earnings. Uh, he also claimed at one point uh, during the proceedings retaliation in violation of several uh, state of California laws, uh, I don't know if any of those survived the, um, uh, either the trial or the post trial pleading stage, but from the letter filed by BioRad's appellate lawyers, uh, doesn't seem that they're contesting his right to bring forward a, Sarbanes-Oxley claim on either timeliness or lack of reporting. So uh, they are asking, it seems, for about a 25% reduction of uh, the total damage award, at least in this letter filing, which would be approximately uh, $3 million of the $11 million that he won. Um, But uh, as interesting as all of these legal points might be for a true legal geek, uh, Matt, you've raised some really interesting points in your blog that I thought probably are a little more applicable for the compliance professional. So uh, why don't you sort of uh, unpack those and let's see where we can take them.
1: Sure. So my very first takeaway from this mess, because that's what this case is, it's messy, uh, is that all the employees out there who know about some sort of wrongdoing and are wondering what to do, they would look at this mess and say, whoa, that guy's going to maybe lose $3 million because he did not first go to the SEC. So now I know what I'm going to do. And all you compliance officers compliance officers listening out there, what they're first going to do is not call you. They are going to call the SEC, which is exactly what people had feared about this decision. And now right out of the gate, we have a case that is a big screaming signal to people You can lose real money if you bother going internally first. You should go to the SEC for maximum protection. This is not at all what compliance officers want for the message out there. Um, I can appreciate, as I noted in my post, that Sandley Wadler is not the perfect vehicle to have this conversation because he was the ex-general counsel. I know that if you're the GC, you have a duty to report misconduct to the board. Uh, apparently, in at least some states, bar association rules would say that you cannot report to the SEC if you know about wrongdoing. It's like, like I said, there's a lot of complications. There's a lot of mess here. But the vast majority of employees, none of that matters. They are not corporate lawyers. They are not the general counsel. They are regular employees who know about misconduct. They're wondering what to do. They would look at this case and say, "Okay, the lawyers are now trying to cut this guy out of three million dollars." So what I can do to make sure that doesn't happen to me is go straight to the regulators, not at all what compliance officers want, but that's the lesson. Um, I also think again, that like we had said before, Tom, this pits the legal department against the compliance department, which is not a healthy thing to have in the compliance legal relationship. I don't fault uh, outside counsel for Biorad necessarily for trying this because that's their job. If they succeed and they save $3 million for the company, that's what they're being paid to do. However, this is not what the compliance officer's mission is. You know, Like we said before, the legal department's mission is to reduce liability risk, which they are doing by any means necessary, and this is a powerful tool to do that. Uh, but the compliance officer's job is to get misconduct out into the open and figure out how to rectify it. And those missions are not the same. And now this ruling makes those two missions exist in conflict, their intention. And I'm not really sure what the answer to that is, but I would be especially troubled if I were a compliance officer who reports into the legal counsel, as many of you still do, and we all know who you are. But uh, if the legal department has one incentive and compliance is another, but compliance answers into legal I'm willing to bet which incentive wins out in that case, and you know we're going to have more tension and more complexity. Um, and then the third point that, Tom, this is one where I'm not sure what the right answer is, and we can pick this apart, but I am wondering if a company imposes a policy where employees must report misconduct to them internally and maybe even says something like, you must report it to us first. That seems to me like it is preventing employees from full exercise of their Dodd-Frank whistleblower protection rights. And therefore, could that be construed as some sort of retaliation clause? Could it be some other right of action if they report internally, some unha- unhappy manager hears about it, doesn't like it, fires the whistleblower, and then he files a claim, but now some some lawyer out there somewhere is going to try to use this ruling to say, well, you didn't report to the SEC first, so you don't have a claim. Um, I just, like you and I have said before, Tom, I, I look forward to the fact pattern that challenges us on this thought-provoking po- point, but I can't dismiss that scenario from my head. Maybe I'm wrong, and I would like somebody to dismiss it for me if he can, but that's the other thing that lingers in my mind, that I think this is an unsettled issue.
0: So, that third point you raised, actually, points one and two, I think we uh, have previously explored. You certainly had written about them, and I think we talked about them in a prior podcast. But it's this third point, uh, not only on pretaliation, but I'd like to take it a step further where uh, if you do not, if that's the company's uh, either code of conduct requirements or in a policy or procedure, and you do not step forward to report internally uh, and you go to a government regulator, is that now the basis? for a termination. Now, hopefully the, the SEC would, would come down pretty hard on that, given what they have already done on pretaliation cases. Nevertheless, uh, I certainly can see that as a logical outcome from this, uh, this court decision and really putting a crimp in not only what Congress was trying to uh, encourage, but what the SEC has tried to follow through with that encouragement through their whistleblower program, and with um, a requirement for uh, employees to to come forward and report, uh, it would seem to me to to be an e- equally logical step that uh, someone could be fired if they see something and don't report, uh, because if that's a requirement as well, so. Uh, uh, I don't get to play lawyer on the slippery slope very often, but this certainly seems like uh, many different uh, threads could come out of this, um, really starting with this whole concept around pretaliation and uh, where companies may try to protect themselves uh, um, by requiring employees to report internally first.
1: Yeah, yeah. Like I said, I just, I feel like that. There's going to be so many complexities around this that um, some company somewhere out there will probably try to make that argument if it ever finds itself in that position. And I know for most people listening to this podcast, you're working at larger companies with some semblance of a mature compliance function. It's the companies with the immature compliance function or no compliance function. They're the ones I worry about because they do have a legal function, and those guys are already thinking – how do we reduce liability risk under any circumstance with any tool we have? That could put us into a very awkward position. Uh, one compliance professional I know, that person emailed me after my post to note, note that under New York Fed, uh, State Bar Association laws, actually, corporate lawyers are prohibited from reporting somebody to the SEC before. First going to the company and notifying them of this. Uh, so if you obey the rules that are upon you, if you're a corporate lawyer, you're either risking getting fired and no retaliation recourse, or you're risking getting disbarred. Like there's inherent unfairness here. Um all of it, of course, gets back to the point that this was a poorly written law or a portion of Dodd-Frank that was poorly written that Congress ideally should fix. In the real world, Congress is not going to do that. The SEC, I think, should try to address some of this, but I'm not really sure how much discretion the SEC has. Um, And it gets back to, unfortunately, even an accurate reading of a bad law, which I think is what the Supreme Court did here. Like, (laughs) you wind up with a bad result, and this is where we are. I don't fault the SEC for the ruling they made, but I do fault Congress for coming up with a a gray area of, uh, legislation that really brought us to where we are.
0: So typically, uh, in, we say bad facts lead to bad law interpretation from the courts, but here I think we can say that a poorly drafted law has led to some, uh, pretty inequitable results. Um, the, uh, the procedural, pro, uh, procedural, uh, 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 place of the, um, Wadler Appeal is there at the Ninth Circuit. Uh, the company uh, has filed a letter brief with the uh, Ninth Circuit alerting them of uh, the Digital Realty uh, case, which is uh, from the limited times I had to go into the appellate world. That's how you do things when the, there's been a change in the law, or at least a change in the law that part of an underlying judgment is based upon. So it would be uh, very interesting for the, uh, uh, when we see the full uh, Ninth Circuit opinion um, come out to address this, not only this specific issue, but the rest of Sandy Wattler's case. And uh, Matt, I guess the uh, request I would have from you is uh, keep on thinking because you're thinking of lots of different uh, unforeseen consequences of where this um, Supreme Court decision may go and implications for the compliance practitioner going forward.
1: So, you yeah. know, the, the other what one other point that the sticky part for me is that to correctly resolve this, to thoroughly and comprehensively resolve it, we're going to have to bring state bar associations into the picture and. That is an extra layer of complexity that I really would not wish on my worst enemy. I like lawyers, but I have dealt with various state bar associations. They are not always the most forward-thinking people. Um, maybe the ABA could come up with some sort of model rule to help address this. I don't know, but like, there isn't going to be an easy or quick fix to the mess that we are in. And On that chipper note, Tom, I guess we talked it out for today.
0: So I certainly agree with you on the uh, state bar requirements, and I've uh, actually debated this specific point at various conferences uh, across uh, the country, and um, really, it uh, even before the digital realty decision, there was there was no answer. Um, it was it sort of came down to, uh, as you articulated, do you risk having a grievance filed against you and potentially being disbarred, uh, or not, and not reporting? So. Um, that does add a level of administrative bureaucracy because state bars, uh, associations are typically not run even by elected legislators. They're run by the, uh, the lawyers themselves. So you have uh, the state bar associations, you have uh, state legislatures, and obviously you have Congress it, involved in all of this. So um, I think it's going to be a fertile ground for further explanation. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of Compliance Into the Weeds. If you have any questions on this podcast, you can email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. You can email Matt at mkelly at radicalcompliance.com. Compliance into the Weeds post weekly, and I hope you will join us again next week where we take a deep dive into the compliance or compliance-related weeds of a story. Compliance into the Weeds is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network.